Welcome to Mark Connor's podcast. For more information, visit markconnor.com.au. Last week, we talked about the, the fact that God is a worker and he values our work. Our work has value and dignity. And uh, when you think of many of the Bible characters, you may not realize that they did a variety of jobs during the week. Uh, for instance, we begin with Abraham, Abraham, the father of all who believed. Did you know Abraham was a herdsman, had flocks that he looked after? He was a trader, uh, probably in the caravan trade, trading goods and things like that. We've got uh, a woman named Deborah. Anyone heard of Deborah? She was a female judge. She spent a lot of her week judging decisions and issues, a pretty significant role in Israel. We've got people like Joseph, Daniel, and Esther who had high-profile positions in the government in a very pagan environment. We've got da- uh, David was king. Uh, Nehemiah was an employee in the government palace. He also ended up being an urban planner and developer. Read the book of Nehemiah. Urban planning, development, getting the city of Jerusalem back in order, getting the economic, the civil life, as well as the spiritual life together. Nehemiah. Uh, We've got Amos. Anyone heard of Amos? Uh, Amos was a prophet, but you know he was a farmer. Had a farm. Hard work. Worked the farm, but also God spoke through him. Jesus was a? Pretty quick. Jesus was a carpenter uh, up to the age of 30. Peter, James, and John were? Fishermen, uh, catching fish, working for their father's business. Paul was a little slower on that one. Trivial pursuit may not be your game. (laughs) Paul was a tent maker. He made tents on the side and he used the income from the tent making to fund his mission work and activities. So many of the men and women in the Bible spent a lot of their time out in the workplace. And so today we want to continue talking about your work, God's work, and particularly how the way we go about our work really does matter. So if you've got a Bible this morning, we're going to go to the book of Colossians. Colossians is a a great letter that Paul wrote. He was in prison at this time, and he wrote this letter to some believers in the city of Colossae. And at the beginning, he starts with talking about the amazing things that we have because of Jesus Christ. We've been singing about that today. In Christ, we have all these incredible blessings. After talking about all the blessings in Christ, the second half of the book starts to talk about how this should make a difference in the way we live our daily lives. And so he starts talking about family, talks to wives, husbands, and children, and a quick little advert here. In the month of May, our entire month of May, our theme is Modern Family. And we're going to be looking at practical wisdom for single people, for married people, for parents. And so just just block out May. Make sure you're here every week. I guarantee it'll be very helpful in the relationships that are so important in our lives. So he talks about family, and then we're going to pick up Colossians 3, verse 22 onwards. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything you do. Try to please them all the time, not just when they are watching you. Serve them sincerely because of your reverent fear of the Lord. Work willingly at whatever you do as though you are working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward and that the master you are serving is Christ. But if you do what is wrong, you'll be paid back for the wrong you've done, for God has no favorites. Chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, be just and fair to your slaves. Remember that you also have a master in heaven. Uh, That section there in the Message Bible, Eugene Peterson translates it this way. Servants, do what you're told by your earthly masters, and don't just do the minimum that will get you by. Do your best. 
work from the heart for your real master, for God, confident that you'll get paid in full when you come into your inheritance. Keep in mind always that the ultimate master, your ultimate boss, is Christ. The sullen servant who does shoddy work will be held responsible. Being Christian doesn't cover up bad work. It's a good spot for an amen there. And masters, treat your servants considerably. Be fair with them. Don't forget for a minute that you too serve a master God in heaven. Paul is very interested in how people who name the name of Christ live their lives in a daily basis. This was a time when slavery was part of the social structure. Paul doesn't address it in this text, but he talks to people that are masters and slaves and says, hey, this is how you live your life through the week as a follower of Christ. And I think there are some principles in these instructions that apply to us today for employers, for employees as we go about our work. Thankfully, we're not slaves, yes? You may feel a bit of a slave sometimes in your job, but uh, there's some principles here today that I think can inform us in how we go about our work on a daily basis. And so let me share those with you. Number one, I think the first thing Paul is saying here is to be diligent. Everyone say diligent. One more time. To be diligent. Look at verse 23. Work willingly at whatever you do. Another translation says, whatever you do, do it with all your heart as to the Lord. To be diligent means to to do a good job. To, to do your very, very best, to do it as if Jesus had asked you to do it, to do it with a quality and with an excellence. Let me give you a bit of a portrait of what diligence could look like. Have a listen as I read out this description. To be diligent means to be punctual. Smile. It means to keep your word. You said you do something, you do it. It, it means to respect other people. It means to exceed expectations. To be diligent is to take responsibility for mistakes. I forgot. I blew it. It was my fault. It means to share the credit. We, we did this rather than just I did this. It it means to be a team player. Being diligent includes resolving conflicts as quickly and thoroughly as possible. It means improving yourself, getting better at what you do. Paying attention to detail. How many know a small leak can sink a big ship? The details really do matter. Volunteering for extra assignments and being joyful and enthusiastic as you go about your work. Now, as I gave that description there, was I describing you? If I was, as I read that description, you went, yeah, that's me. I want to say, well done. You're a diligent worker, and that pleases God. It also attracts favor, and you're a person who's adding value to your workplace. If as I read that list, you go, ouch, on a couple of them, then guess what? You need to lift your game. Thank you, Mark. I'm glad I came today. You need to lift your game. You need to improve. You've got some homework to do. Because Paul would be saying, be a diligent worker. Whatever you do, do it with all your heart. Do the very best. Give 100%. Don't be like the guy that says, I give 100% at work every week. I give 12% on Monday, 23% on Tuesday, 40% on Wednesday, 20% on Thursday, 5% on Friday. Thank God it's Friday. 
No, no, no. No, give a hundred percent every day of the week. Be a diligent worker. I think being diligent, one of the things I mentioned was exceeding expectations. If you kind of think this is what's required, a diligent worker doesn't just do what's required, they do a little bit extra. Someone once said the difference between ordinary and extraordinary is the little bit extra. Jesus is the one who authored this little maxim that goes like this, go the extra mile. You ever heard that phrase, go the extra mile? See, in the first century, in Roman law, a Roman soldier or centurion could get any civilian and say, I want you to carry this, and you had to carry it for one mile. That was the law. But as soon as you got to the one mile mark, the law said you don't have to go any further. It doesn't matter who the the Roman soldier, their ranking is, once you've done a mile, you've done what's required. They couldn't force you to take it further. Jesus says, as my followers, I want you to be the kind of person who doesn't do what's required. Surprise people and tell the soldier, I'll do another mile. I'll do a little bit extra. How many know when you do that, that kind of makes you stand out? I mean, who does that? Who, who goes the extra mile? Followers of Christ should be people who work in such a way, they don't just do a minimum amount, they go beyond. They exceed expectations. It's a great story in the Old Testament about a young single girl named Rebecca. And Rebecca is down by the well. She's getting some water for herself and her family. She sees a man there. Now remember, when you read Bible stories, the people in the story, they haven't read the rest of the chapter. They don't know what's coming. They're not going, oh, if I do this, this. No, no, no. Rebecca's down there. She's getting water. She sees this man. Now, we know this man is Eliezer, and he's a servant of the richest man in the area. His name's Abraham, and Abraham has a single son named Isaac. He's really cute. Doesn't actually say that, but let's just assume. And Eliezer is looking for a wife for uh, his master, Abraham's son, Isaac. Uh, Rebecca doesn't know this. She's just down doing a daily menial task, getting water from a well. And yet she looks across, sees a man, and offers to give him a drink, happens to see he's got a bunch of camels, and says, I'll, I'll, I'll give water to your camels also. Now, I'm not a zoologist. I'm not an expert in camels, but I know that they're thirsty. That little commitment, talk about going the extra mile. She's going the extra 10 miles. No one's asking her to do this. She's saying, I'll give you a drink. Let me look after your camels. Little did she know that because she was a person who exceeded expectations, this man, she captured his attention. She ended up getting married to Isaac, joining in the royal line, being a part of God's purposes. And it all went back to a daily task that she said, I'm not just going to do the minimum. I'm going to do a little bit extra, a little bit extra. What would it look like if followers of Christ all through the city this week just live that way, work that way? I'm going to do a little bit extra, as if God himself had asked me to do this job. Paul's saying, be willing, uh, be a diligent worker on a daily basis. It's not competitively, it's not an ego thing. It's about honoring God, being the best we can be. Number two, second principle from the text we've just read, is to be a person of integrity. Let's look at verse 22. Uh, Colossians 3.22, Obey your earthly masters in everything you do. Try to please them all the time, not just when they are watching you. It's a good phrase, isn't it? How many know the average person will work fairly well when the boss is in the room? If you're smart. But, But what does work look like when the boss isn't around? Paul says... Don't just be diligent, but 
Be diligent all the time, even when the boss is not looking. And then he goes on to say, serve them sincerely. Everyone say sincerely. Serve them sincerely because of your reverent fear of the Lord. The word sincerely means with authenticity, with genuineness. In other words, be real, be honest, be a person of integrity. You know, the workplace has many temptations. There's temptations to maybe steal a little or to take something or to... Maybe use some time that you're getting paid for to do something that's not really work time. There's those temptations to steal, maybe to cheat a little, maybe to be a little dishonest, to, to, to tell a lie, not, not to fully tell the truth. There, there are sexual temptations relationally. I was listening to some teaching by Ken Williams, who did a lot of counseling of uh, couples that had ended up in, a, in an adulterous situation. He says, you know, every couple I counseled, every one of them said, I thought it would never happen to me. No one gets up in the morning and says, I'm going to go ruin my life today. <laughs> and his conclusion was, sexual immorality, adultery, it's never a fall, it's always a slide. Interesting, it's never a fall, it's always a slide. And the slide starts with some seemingly innocent things, just some extra time with the person that seems innocent, it's friendly, but then there's an emotional attachment, and then maybe some words that probably are a little bit intimate and inappropriate, and maybe some inappropriate touch. It, it starts really small, and eventually it's like a rapids, and the adultery is just the last thing that happens. The, the stuff that happened up here is where things started to go out of order. And so he went on to say, we need to get an early warning sign up here rather than down the end of the rapids. It's the same in areas of honesty. No one just goes out and robs a bank or steals a million dollars. It starts with being unfaithful, dishonest in the little things. Once heard a story of a, an American Indian who was talking to a young person. And this young person had said, what, what's a conscience? And the American Indian said, your conscience is like a wooden triangle on the inside of your heart. And when you do something wrong, it turns and it causes pain in your heart. If you stop it, it stops turning. But what happens is when it turns, if you ignore it, the edges start to wear off. And eventually over time, if you keep ignoring it, you do something wrong, it turns, but it just spins around and you don't feel anything anymore. What a very powerful metaphor. Your conscience is a gift from God to remind you in that moment when you could tell a lie or steal something or cheat or maybe just step over a line, a barrier in a relationship. It it begins to turn and that is our friend. It's saying, hey, warning. It's a bit like the red light on your dashboard in the car. When it comes on, don't hit it with a hammer and say, I rebuke you in Jesus' name. You negative thing, you. No, no, no. The red, the red light is your friend. It's saying, hey, danger ahead. And Paul's saying, make sure that you live with integrity, that you listen to the conscience, listen to the Holy Spirit. And so that's really, really important in the workplace, that we be diligent, that we be men and women of integrity. That includes for employers too, doing what's just and fair, treating our people well. Number three, everyone getting something out of this this morning? If you haven't, there's something coming for you. (laughs) Number three, third principle is to be a loving person. We often think of love as, you know, when the church gathers together and we think of love in our life groups and the fellowship we have with maybe followers of Christ. We're to be known by our love, but love's got to flow into every area of our life. Paul in chapter four goes on and says, live wisely among those who are not believers. 
And in the workplace, you'd have opportunity to mix with people with faith, no faith, different faiths. Live wisely, he says. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation, the way you speak, be gracious and attractive. One translation says seasoned with salt so that you will have the right response to everybody. And so as a worker, be diligent, do the very best you can. Be a person of integrity. Make sure that who you are on the outside matches who you really are on the inside. And be a loving person, which simply comes down to treating people well, to building good relationships when there's conflicts, to try to sort them out. There's a a psychologist, I don't think he's a Christian, his name is uh, Daniel Goleman, G-O-L-E-A, M-A-N. And he's a leading psychologist on workplace relationships and effectiveness. And uh, he did some studies, groundbreaking studies about success for employees. What makes someone in the workplace really successful and what causes someone to kind of lose jobs and never really be able to hold down a job? He came down to three qualities that a person has as an employee. One is what we could call IQ, our intellectual quotient, our intellectual, our intelligence. That's important. Number two is technical skill, our ability to do a task, a job, you know, dig a hole, program a computer, put a plan together, technical skill. And number three is what he calls EQ, emotional quotient or emotional intelligence. So you need IQ, you need technical skill, and you need emotional intelligence. Emotional intelligence is the ability to get along with other people, to be sensitive to what they're feeling and what you're about to say is going to impact them with. And it's the ability to control your own moods so that you don't have a negative effect on the atmosphere in relationships. His studies reveal that EQ is twice as important as IQ and technical skill. Now, if you've ever been into a bank and you needed some help, how many know you don't care if this person got straight A's on their accounting exam? You don't care how well they can put a spreadsheet together. What you care about is how they treat you. Come on. If they're rude to you, if they act like you're a bother, none of that is irrelevant. All of it is irrelevant. None of it is relevant. It's how you're treated that matters. And this is what Daniel Goldman's saying. We focus a lot on IQ and technical skill. He's saying that, that that's all right, but unless you get along with people and treat people well, it's over for you in the workplace. <laughs> Studies out there, management literature, it's everywhere. He could have saved a lot of work just by reading the Bible. <laughs> what did Jesus focus most of his time on with his disciples? A little bit on... Intelligence. This is what the Father's like. This is what the kingdom's like. A little bit on technical skill. This is how you pray for people. A lot of work on quit arguing about who's the greatest and let those kids come to me. Don't. He spent most of the time banging into them the fact it's all about people, guys. It's all about people. And so as followers of Christ, we want to be diligent, people of integrity. We should be the most loving people in our workplaces. And that's as simple as just thinking about our moods and our attitudes. I like the funny example of maybe you're a person who works in an office and it's as simple as you could be on your computer and someone sends you an email and you are really angry at this email. You are so annoyed. It's getting under your skin and then someone knocks on your door and you go, what? (laughs) Now just think about this moment. You have just taken all this anger and you've just bled it over this person who's knocked on your door. How many know they'll think twice about knocking on your door again? 
An emotionally intelligent person does this. They've got the angry email. They're still getting angry. It's okay to get angry. angry. It's what you do with your anger. And so they're getting angry, and, and someone knocks at the door, and they go, yes, can I help you? <laughs> they have quarantined their anger and said, I'll get back to this. But this person knocking at my door, they're nothing to do with this. I need to treat them with respect. Now, I know this is really deep for a Sunday morning. You pay big money to go to a seminar to learn this kind of stuff. I tell you what, I tell you what. Let's be loving people in the workplace. And hey, other things are important, but our relationships are most important. Number four, fourth uh, thought from Colossians is to be a witness for Jesus Christ. Colossians 4, Paul says, I'm praying for opportunities to speak about Christ. And I will guarantee you that if you are a diligent worker, a person of integrity, and a loving person, you will have opportunities to share your faith because you'll stand out from the crowd. People want to know what's different about you. And so you'll have opportunities to share a meal, share your story, share your faith as we shared about last month. Of course, I've made this number four because I don't believe we should use our workplace just to witness all day and never do any work. It's good to be spiritual, good to be nice, but let's not abuse the workplace's time when we're not doing our job and we're sharing about Jesus. Yes, we'll share about Jesus. We'll, hey, can we talk over lunch? But let's make sure we're doing the other things well. But it's an opportunity to be a witness for Jesus. And so there are four principles we can learn from Paul. Be diligent. Be a person of integrity, be loving, be a witness for Jesus. And so a quick checkup at this point in the meeting. If you today, if your job that you currently had was re-advertised, would you get it again? Good question, isn't it? Or would someone else get it? Uh, Paul not only taught this stuff, he lived this stuff. He's in prison right now when he's writing his letter. But a little earlier, he had been three years in a city called Ephesus where he'd worked in a church. He'd made tents. And at the end of the three-year period, if you read Acts 20, he's, he's moving on now. He's leaving this workplace. And they're down by the wharf. He's about to get onto a boat. And all the key uh, people that he's worked with, they are there and they break down and they weep. They are crying because Paul is leaving. Quick question, if you left your workplace, (laughs) would there be any tears? And if so, what kind of tears would they be? (laughs) It's a good question, isn't it? Why are they crying? (laughs) You know why they're crying? Because Paul had been incredibly diligent. Read Acts 20. He had worked really hard. He had been a man of integrity. He says, I've I've not stolen any of your goods. I have funded my own. He lived with integrity. He was a loving person. He had poured his life into people, and he was an unbelievable witness for Christ. He had worked so well that when he was moving on, people wept and said, please don't leave us. And so this wasn't just a a sermon he preached, it was a life that he modeled. And that's a good challenge for you and I as we go about our daily work. How we work really does matter. It matters to God, matters to the people we're working for, and it matters to us. Everyone said amen. amen. So I pray that you'll be encouraged but also challenged to think about how am I going about my work and is there a bit of a tweak I need to make. A couple of final comments today that I think are really, really important as we wrap up this two-part series, uh, because there's more to life than work. Everyone said, thank God. 
There's more to life than work. And so just a couple of really important thoughts today. Uh, Firstly, you are not your job. You are not your job. It's interesting when we meet people, we'll often say, hi, what's your name? First question. And the second question is, what do you do? Now, how many know saying nothing is probably not a cool answer? We like to be able to say, I'm an accountant, or I'm a plumber, or I'm a house. You know, we like to say, this is my name, and this is what I do. It is an important question. But let's never forget that what we do is not our source of identity. It's not who we are. You are not your job. Your job is important, but if your job, which is a good thing, becomes the main thing in your life, any good thing that becomes the supreme thing becomes an idol in our world. Idols are simply good things that we've made the main thing. And if we look to our job as the source of our identity, our security, our worth, our value, our applause, then that job becomes an idol that we begin to worship. Rather than realizing God is the sense of my identity, my security, my worth, my value. And because I am someone in Christ, I now go to my work out of the fullness of who I already am. But if I lost my job today, I still am the same person in Christ. I'll be looking for a new job tomorrow. Don't allow your work to be the source of your identity. You are not your job. And I think that that causes us to sometimes just pause and say, well, why, why do I go to work? Why am I working? Are you just climbing a corporate ladder to get to a certain uh, amount of achievement so you'll have applause from people? Is that, is that why you're working? Is, is it to make more money to buy more stuff? Is, is that your motivation? Is it a kind of an ego thing, a fear thing? Why do we work? And if we come to a place where our work is what we're looking for to meet all those needs, then it starts to set up a whole bunch of dysfunctional things in our world. And so just just a thought for you. You are not your job. Number two, second uh, thought as we uh, wrap this series up. Uh, Number two, you need a rest. That's assuming that you've been working. (laughs) You need a rest. God worked for six days and then he rested on the seventh. Fourth commandment is you will work six days and rest on the seventh. Not work one day and rest six days. No, no, no. Work and then rest. And in the Old Testament, they had a law. It was called the Sabbath. And one day in seven, they had to stop working. And by stopping working, they were reinforcing the fact that they were not in control of the world. Because how many know when you stop working for a day, the world still works? Because God's kind of doing his job. And it's a good reminder that you and I aren't God. When we stop and we no longer produce, the world keeps running. And it was so serious in the Old Testament that if you worked on the Sabbath, they killed you. Imagine that. Nowadays, we kill ourselves when we don't take a Sabbath. When we go and go and go and go and go and never rest, we do damage to our lives. And I've had some seasons in my world where I've kind of started to burn out a little bit and it's all been traced back to living at an unsustainable pace where I'm working too much and I'm not keeping the Sabbath. And the Sabbath, we no longer keep a literal day, Saturday or Sunday, but Sabbath is a time to worship God. It's time for family. It's time to recreate. It's time to reflect, time to ponder, time to just stop from producing all of the time. What does that look like in your world? You know, workaholism today is a respectable addiction. 
because it can kind of be guised under this diligence. And it's one thing to work hard, it's another thing to be a workaholic. I got a few photos of some workaholics this week. I didn't steal yours or mine, but here's some people that probably are working a little bit too much. What's the difference between hard work and being a workaholic? We, we want to work hard. We want to be diligent. But there's a line where we cross over where work is now driving us. It's addictive to the point that we start doing things that damage ourselves. We start to dry up spiritually and our relationships start to be frazzled and affected by the pace and the amount of work that we're involved in. I'm going to give you a little 10-question a little checkup today to determine whether you're a, a workaholic, not an alcoholic. That's a different subject. A workaholic or not. And so uh, just, just, just look ahead. No, no elbows to the left or the right. Um, you don't need to answer out loud. Just 10 questions that I think kind of help just do a little bit of a checkup on our relationship to work. Now, number one, first question. Are you always in a hurry? Just take your time on that one. Number two, does your to-do list always have more on it than you could possibly accomplish in a single day? Wouldn't want to run out of things to do. Number three, does doing nothing drive you up the wall? Hear a few whispers, yes. Number four, do you find it difficult to say no to opportunities? Number five, do you feel guilty when you relax? Number six, do you frequently find it difficult to turn your mind off at night when you go to bed? It's very quiet now. <laughs> Number seven, do people around you tell you you should slow down? Number eight, do you, procrast do you procrastinate about taking holidays? Number nine, do you have to get sick to slow down? Number ten, here's the biggie. Do you ever take work-related reading material into the toilet? <laughs> if you do that, you are a certified, confirmed workaholic. Now, now, just a quick tip. If you answered no to all 10 of those questions, don't worry. You're going to be okay. You, you, you're fine. You're fine. But if you answered yes to one or more of those questions, like I did, then you probably need to have a good conversation about work in your life. Um, I, I answer yes to most of those, and I find the combination of loving what I do and having lots to do being an unhealthy recipe <laughs> because there's, there's, there's just a lot to do, and if you enjoy what you're doing, work can start to become a, a bit of an adrenaline drug in our world. And so uh, we need to reflect and ask ourselves how is work situated in our world. For those of us who have some workaholic tendencies, some insight to help us is that research would be telling us that the most productive people are the most deeply rested people. And the more rested you are, the more productive you will be. In fact, there's a whole science now on creating a, an appropriate rhythm of activity and rest, of engagement and disengagement, and of not going all the time. They would say that the, the, the most productive way to work a day is to work in 90-minute cycles, to be focused on one thing for 90 minutes. We, we try to multitask, which is actually a myth, 
You can only focus on one thing at, at once, but we've got emails um, binging and mobiles going off and we're doing all these things and we think we're being productive. No, focus on one thing, concentrated attention for 90 minutes and then have a walk, have a break, come back and do another. You do four or five of those in a day, you'll have your most productive output. But often we think that if we just keep working, we'll be more productive. All of nature is built around rhythm and cycles. The, the sun rises and then the sun sets, at least as we see it. The, the, the tide comes in and then the tide comes out. The tide comes in, the tide comes out. We breathe in, everyone breathe in, everyone breathe out. You've been doing that all through this message. Imagine if all day all you did was breathe out. <laughs> you laugh. But often that's what we do. We breathe out. We're working all the time. If we put your heart up to an ECG meter, hopefully there's a nice rhythm that looks like this, a wave. If your heart looks like this, kind of a flat line, how many know you're in trouble? But, but often we, we live our life like this. We go, go, the workaholics amongst us. We go like this. We go, 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 because there's no, so much to do. I used to preach great sermons, very anointed sermons that went like this. Life is not a hundred meter sprint. Life is a marathon. It's not how fast you run. It's how long you last. I don't believe that in the same way as I used to believe it. What do marathon runners look like? Skinny. Exhausted, I heard someone <laughs> say in the first service. Skinny, exhausted, gaunt, scrawny. They look like greyhounds, don't they? You know why? Because they run and they run and they run and they run and they run. and They just keep going all the time. I've changed the metaphor. Life's not a marathon. Life is a series of sprints. What do sprinters look like? Awesome. Fit. Uh, you ever seen a sprinter? I mean, seriously, buff. You know why? Because as, as intense as the race is, within 100, 200, 400 meters, they get to rest again. They're having a drink. So it's really engaged, disengaged. And, and I think that's how we need to see the way God's designed our life to be. Uh, right now, I'm preaching a message. I want to be fully engaged. I want to give 110% of it. But I can't do this 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I need a time to disengage, to rest, to recover, to recoup. And you need to see your life as having a rhythm of activity and rest, of breathing out, breathing in. And if you've got too much of the breathing out, then you are setting yourself up for breakdown because you're violating the very nature in which God has created this world. And so this rhythm, this cycle, you need to have a rest. Number three, final point, is you need to balance work with the other areas of your life. We need to balance work with the other areas of life. We have family, we have friends, we have church community, we have our relationship with God that, yes, flows through our work, but we need special time alone with God. And the truth is, in most of our jobs, work can fill as much of our week as we let it fill. If you're a business owner here today, you understand that. Pastors understand that because a pastor's work is never done. It's never done. And there are no boundaries. It will fill as much of your life as you allow it to. And so unless we create some boundaries, work can fill so much of our life that we start cheating on our relationship with God. We start cheating on our family in the sense of they're getting the leftovers of our emotional energy. We're coming home and we've got nothing to give. 
And so we have to create some boundaries and we have to ask ourselves, how much is enough? And some of us have got to learn to say no without feeling guilty. No is a very positive word. Learn to say a nice no. Thank you very much for the invite. Unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to do that. And then smile. (laughs) No is a very powerful word. Some of us say yes too much. And so you've got a 40-hour-a-week job, you know, put in a little extra. Do 45 and, and give it your best and trust that God will honor that. But, but if it's starting to become 50 and 60 and 70, you've got to actually ask yourself, when is enough enough? No one on their deathbed ever said, I wish I spent more time in the office. <laughs> Just doesn't happen. And sometimes the relentless pursuit of more and bigger and better has a huge downside in our own personal well-being, our spiritual life, and our family. And so we've got to learn to balance work with all the other areas of our life. So that's it. Talked about the purpose of work, how we work matters, and we need to realize there is more to life than work. And so I wonder what the Holy Spirit would speak to you personally. We've covered a lot. What would be one or two things that may be a response for you today? You know, uh, sermons don't change people's lives. It's what you do about what you hear that matters. And so I'd be just asking, what does God want you to do in response to today? Maybe for some of you, it's not a new job tomorrow. It's maybe a new attitude about an old job. You know, you talk to, any, un, talk to any unemployed person today, and they'll tell you how much value a job has. And if you remember back to the job you've got right now, remember the first day you started it? Just try to remember that first day. I bet the alarm went off in the morning. You jumped out of bed and said, good morning, Lord. Thanks for my job. Maybe something like that. <laughs> Fast forward a couple of months, a couple of years. Maybe Monday morning's alarm goes off. It's good, Lord. It's morning. What's happened? It's the same job, but maybe the job's become a little familiar. You don't appreciate it as much anymore. And so maybe for you, it's just a new attitude to go, thank you, God, for a job, and I'm going to go tomorrow with with a new attitude about my job. Maybe it's a new perspective on your job, just seeing how important it is. Maybe for you today, it's, hey, that profile of a diligent worker, maybe you, it's lifting your game and working a little bit more excellently. Or maybe you're a bit like me, you love work so much that work's starting to fill your whole world and you've got to make some tough decisions and, and pull back and quarantine work. And, and, and what would it look like to have a to-do list that matches the time you have for the day rather than twice as much so that you go home after dinner and you're feeling like you haven't worked hard and you start doing all those other tasks? And you're setting up a a fantasy world. No one could accomplish that in one day. What's your your response today? I want to encourage you. God's interested in your work. And I pray that you'll respond to what God's speaking to you about today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today that you have modeled yourself as a God who works. And when you were done creating the world, you said it's very good. You were pleased. You took satisfaction, joy. You even delighted in your work. You said, it's a great job. And I thank you today that what we do has value, it has dignity. I pray that as we go about our work throughout the week, whether we're paid or not, that we would be diligent workers, people of integrity, loving workers, and people who are great witnesses for you. I also pray that, Lord, if work has become a bit of an idol where we start to find all of our identity and applause and kicks from our job, that maybe we just need to lay that idol down and and look to you for those things that only you can provide. 
Or for some today that maybe have just been violating the Sabbath, just going, 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 going in that marathon mode that if I just keep working, I'll eventually get on top of it. Lord, just, just break that deception today to realize that if we're waiting for everything to be done to have a day off, we're never going to have a day off because it's never, ever done. And so I pray for people today that need to embed a Sabbath in their world. You'd give them the courage to do so. And I pray for those that need to balance work with family and God and church where work has started to take over everything. Lord, you give them the the wisdom and the courage to make some decisions, to get work back in its rightful place. Our work, God's work. Lord, today, would you give people the wisdom, the courage, and the grace, Lord, to see their work as important, but have it to be everything you want it to be, nothing more, nothing less. In Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said amen. Amen. God bless you. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. For more information, visit markconnor.com.au.